We are going to start the new year off with a bang and ask the question, is our understanding of how creation was accomplished germane to any of our core teachings as Christians? This is Matthew Carnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. So I must decide whether I will believe the near unanimous consensus in those fields or if I will come to the conclusion that they're all a bunch of godless liars and lunatics because certain Christians insist that the word day in Genesis can only mean 24 hours and nothing else. Much thanks to our buddy Brian, who put us onto the Matt Walsh uh, podcast number 126, I believe it was, where he talks about uh, young earth creationism. Some really interesting stuff going on there that we're going to cover, and cover it in a way that I, I don't think a lot of people, uh, in a way that uh, it's not covered uh, too often that I've heard at any rate, and I've got a pretty good amount of time to kind of check these things out. But before we get to that, let me... Let you know that so far, the last year, we started the uh, Kenyon Well Project about this time last year, and so far we've raised a little over $2,000. So at this pace, in 15 years, we'll be able to drill that well. So we got to pick up the pace a little bit here, people. Now, again, I know we, I've talked about it before, but we, we might have an 80-20 principle going on here. That's why we've got the option uh, to sign up for a monthly donation. So 20% of you out there may have to give 80% of the funds for this. And some of you have already signed up for that. Really appreciate it. Again, thanks to Table Talk Radio, Pastor Wolfmuller and Pastor Gigline for having us on. We had a, a nice windfall of donations uh, to end out this year. But we've got to pick up the pace a little bit on this thing, folks. Again, I cannot emphasize enough what kind of difference this will make. And I'm, I'm confident we can do it. We're just picking up steam, some momentum. It's not going to take us 15 years. It's it's not. But the reason it's not going to take 15 years is because some of you slackers out there, <laughs> and I say that lovingly, are going to give your $50. Now, again, I understand you can't give to everything that's you know asked of you. Everybody's asking for support. The unique thing about our ask here is it's a one-time thing. Now, you can sign up for the for the monthly donation idea. And that's fine, but a one-time donation, one and done, that's that's it. That's really all we're asking, and it doesn't take that many of us to raise this amount of money. So please do give to the Kenya Well Project. Also, I want to thank um, KNNA, The Cross, in, the, in this new year for hosting our podcast. Really appreciate those guys up there in Nebraska, and we're very happy to be on KNNA, The Cross. Okay, so Matt Walsh on Young Earth Creationism. He thinks... Young Earth creationists are a bunch of nuts, which so pretty much every Orthodox Lutheran he would meet, he would think is crazy. Uh, and and you're going to kind of see uh, that in this podcast, and we're gonna and we're gonna walk through, you know, really what he's missing here. Uh, again, I I don't listen to Matt Walsh hardly at all, unless there's something interesting he's talking about. He mostly talks about politics and the and the religious ramifications on politics. He's almost, in a sense, a more hip, hipster, cool type of Al Mohler type of person, and I'm old, so I just listen to Al Mohler. Uh, but at any rate, Walsh is fine most of the time. I agree with him, but it, but in this case, I, I think he's really missing some major components of this debate. 
and we're going to point that out, and we've got a lot to get to, so we're not going to gild the lily whatsoever. We're going to get right to Matt Walsh, uh, episode 126 of his podcast, where he talks about young earth creationism. Here we go. I get this question kind of frequently. Someone says, do you take the whole Bible literally? Right. I always find that to be a confusing question. Do you take the Bible literally? It's, it's a very confusing question. I, I think that the literal versus non-literal debate is, it's a false dichotomy. It's kind of, it's kind of a miscommunication, really, um, between, the, between the two sides. N- nobody takes the whole Bible literally. Okay? Nobody does. We all agree that there are parts of the Bible that cannot be taken literally. We all agree, for example, that the parables, that Jesus' parables are parables. They're stories. Jesus did not mean for us to assume that the prodigal son is a real historical person. So that is non-literal, obviously. Um, He was telling a story to illustrate a point. Jesus speaks non-literally quite a lot. For example, he calls himself the door. But we know he's not a literal door, right? This is a... Speaking in a spiritual sense, he is the door to eternal life. I think, by the way, it is kind of instructive and interesting that God in the New Testament uses non-literal language so often. You know, he uses stories to make his point, and he uses metaphors so often in the New Testament. So we have to ask ourselves, did he just start doing that in the New Testament? Um, Or is it possible that he did it in the Old Testament, too? Well, even in the Old Testament, um, there's agreement that some of it is non-literal. Even, even the so-called biblical literalists would agree that um, the Psalms, for instance, are not literal. Yes, the Psalms literally exist, but they're poetry, they're hymns. It makes no sense to say that you take poetry and hymns literally. The point is that when you're reading the Bible, which is comprised of dozens of books written by dozens of different authors, authors over hundreds of years, what you have to do is you have to first determine what genre each of the books belong to, because they don't all belong in the same genre. There are many different genres in the Bible. There's, it's not one genre. The Psalms are not the same genre as the Gospels. The Gospels, what's the genre of Gospels? Well, that's easy enough. Biography, right? Uh, Paul's letters are in the epistle genre, which, again, is a genre that doesn't really belong in the literal versus non-literal discussion. St. Paul says many things literally, of course, but he also uses metaphor, simile, analogy, and so on. So then we get to Genesis. So now we ask, what genre is, is, uh, is Genesis? Let's tackle the do you take the Bible literally question. Most of the time I found when people are asking this question, they don't mean do you take the Bible literally? What they're asking is, do you take any of the Bible literally? Or probably more specifically, do you take any of the Bible seriously? That's really what they're asking. And so what you might want to follow up with a question like that. Do you take the Bible literally? And I might say, well, yes, some of it I do. Where it calls for me to take it literally, you've got to define that term. That That is such a it's a squishy term. Um, but again, what I found is when people ask that question, what they're asking is, do you take the Bible seriously? So when Christ preaches about hell, do you take that seriously? Like he actually means there is a hell. You take like a Rob Bell type, 
Rob Bell does not take the Bible seriously. That's that's really what they're asking. So that's what you want to drive at when that question's asked. That would that would encapsulate really I think what Walsh is dri- is driving at here. Now, uh, I come from a tradition. I'm a Lutheran, Missouri Synod Lutheran. We take the historical grammatical approach to interpretation, which means essentially that we're trying to drive at the author's meaning, which ultimately is God. And obviously we take into account the human factor as well. He used human beings to write Holy Scripture. We are trying to, if we're looking at Romans, we're trying to get at what did St. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, mean when he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, quoting the Psalms. Now, I know this is completely taboo for postmoderns. This is why they love neo-Orthodoxy, because in the neo- just to put it crassly, in the neo-Orthodox tradition, the way uh, Scripture is understood is it doesn't mean anything until it means something to you. So that's a, a almost a, a proto-form of postmodernism when it comes to Scripture. And again, Rob Bell is a perfect example. What does it mean to you? What it doesn't really matter if this happened or didn't happen. It doesn't matter if it's historical. What matters is what does the text mean? And not only do, what does the text mean, doesn't matter what the author meant. What does it mean to you? Authorial intent is thrown out the window in postmodernism, as we have reviewed many times here. We, however, try to get at the meaning of the author, which ultimately is God, the Holy Spirit. Now, Walsh is right to appeal to genre here. That's exactly right. What are we talking about when we're looking at a particular biblical text? Are we talking about historical narrative? Are we talking about poetry? The a la the wisdom literature, uh, you know, songs, aka the Psalms, Christ's parable. These all tend to employ metaphor and allegory. And Walsh is right to point out that even in uh, historical narrative, we do see some allegory, metaphor creep in there. Uh, when the historical record is being unfolded. We also see this in, in prophecy and apoc- apocalyptic literature tends to employ a lot of metaphor and allegory. Uh, personal communication, like the epistles. Again, Walsh is right. Uh, St. Paul does use some, some illusion and that sort of thing, but that's really, uh, again, uh, a good starting place when, we, when it comes to Genesis. So what are we talking about when we come to Genesis? That's the question he asks. Now, while some portions of Scripture are not to be taken, quote, literally, all should be taken seriously. The right question, as Walsh proposes, is what genre is Genesis 1 and 2? And how do we tell that? We're going to get into that, but let me, uh, spoiler alert, tell you where I'm going with this. It's historical Narrative. All of the indicators of what genre we're looking at will tell us that it's historical narrative. That's going to be, I'm going to demonstrate that both theologically and scientifically as we go along here. Tall order for me, though, uh, for me in this podcast, but I think I'm up to the task. Is it meant to be read? Is it, is it, a, is it a science um, textbook? Is it meant to be read as a precise scientific account of the origins of the universe? Is that why Genesis is there? Is that what God wants us to take from it? 
Um, Does he want us to study it like we study a science book? Of course, he wants us to study it, but is it is it to be studied as a science textbook? If you if you were to isolate Genesis and put it in a section of the bookstore by itself, would it be in the science section? Do you think that Genesis should or can be used as a reference for serious geological and cosmological study? Could a theoretical physicist kind of check his work by consulting the Bible? Um, a, a historian who wants to who wants to know about Jesus will certainly consult the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels and the Epistles are are essentially the only um, first-hand accounts that he can consult. So the Gospels are historical documents. But a cosmologist who's trying to figure out what's going on with the universe will probably not look at the creation story in Genesis because Genesis is not a cosmological resource. It is a theological resource. Now, this is the beginning of Walsh's inconsistencies in all this. Yes, Genesis is a theological resource, but if we're going to use Holy Scripture as an historical resource, might it also be a resource for governing the path we take with our scientific pursuits? The fact of the matter is, scientists up until about the last 200 200 years began with the presupposition that God created and ordered the universe. They freely admitted that their theology informed how they did their science. Isaac Newton is a great example of this. He wouldn't have pursued his study of of the laws of gravity had it not been for the fact that he presupposed, based on Holy Scripture, that God created and ordered the universe. Kepler is another example of this. Galileo is also an example of this, despite his conflicts with the church. He came up with the heliocentric notion of the universe, and he knew it could not contradict Holy Scripture. What he put forth was that having a heliocentric universe was not a contradiction of what was taught in Scripture. Evolutionary scientists have no interest in harmonizing their science with what's in Holy Scripture. Galileo did. And we have to be honest about this as believers, that we have this presupposition that theology is just as important as science. You put a gun to our head, choose science over theology. It's almost like saying, choose the research of a man over what we believe to be the very word of God. And this is serious stuff. Now, and I'm not talking about misinterpretations of it. And, and that, and to give Walsh his due here, he is driving at, you know, maybe we've misinterpreted Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we need to reinterpret it in accord with what we've learned from science. I get that. But there's some major, major problems with that, theologically and scientifically, as we're going to demonstrate. But again, as I pointed out at the beginning of the podcast, we need to be honest about the fact that this is our presupposition that we have a word from God and that he teaches teaches us about things, about history, about science, about philosophy, about logic. 
Our worldview is based on God's word. That is Holy Scripture. We need to be honest about that. And we need not shudder from this. And this works, by the way, in apologetics. Because when we start talking about these things, just throw it out there. Just say, yes, the Bible is the presupposition from which I'm working. And then the natural question is, what presupposition are you working from? Oh, I'm not working from any presupposition. Eh, you're lying. You are working from a presupposition. The evolutionary old earth model works from a presupposition of materialist, naturalistic, uh, from, a, from a materialistic, naturalistic worldview. It does. When you start talking about presuppositions, and this leads to a discussion about did was there a creator, a designer, or was everything... Uh, has everything that we know evolved from a naturalistic, materialistic uh, causes? And that, I've just, over and again, I've seen this lead to discussions on the resurrection. So, now to answer Walsh's question, no, you wouldn't put Genesis in the science section of the library. You'd put it in the historical section. Does it have some information for us about the origins of the universe? Of course it does. But that is that historical or is that scientific? I think that's more historical. Now, let's talk theology for a second. Can we gain all knowledge from science alone? No, we cannot. All we can gain is empirical data. And as we, William Lane Craig likes to put this, we could... What we can gain from science is empirical data upon which we can base philosophical uh, premises for an argument that would move toward a theological conclusion. That's the idea. We want, we want to conjoin these disciplines in order to explain things. If all we had was science, we're not, we're not explaining a darn thing. Because the minute you start explaining, you're, you're a philosopher. See, Richard Dawkins is more of, a, more of a philosopher than he is a scientist. Because all science says is, this is what is. It doesn't explain anything. The minute you start explaining, now you're in, into philosophy, and quickly, you're into theology. What we want to do is harmonize these things. All right. And so... And the question is, just like with our with our idea of epistemology, how are you going to prioritize these things? You want to prioritize them theology down. That's just the as Christians, that's what, how we approach it. Why would we elevate something else above what we believe about God? So let's talk theology, because again, really the presupposition as we're talking about those, that Walsh is working from, is this really doesn't make a difference. Why are people arguing about this? Why are we Christians dividing over this? Why is this an issue? Because it strikes at the, at the, at the very heart of our core theology. Creation, the understanding of how the universe and we as human beings came into being strikes at our core theology. And if you don't believe me, let me quote, St. Paul to you. Romans 5, 
12 and following. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, many more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 and following. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jump down to verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was formed from the earth, a man of dust. A second man is from heaven, and was the man of dust. So also are those who are of dust, and as is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just, we, just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, is Paul speaking metaphorically there? It sounds like, to me, we have to have an historical Adam. 
in order for the gospel to make sense. If Adam is only a metaphor or an allegory, and what he's going to turn to is this whole debate over the word yom. Yom in Hebrew means day. That's what we're going to debate over. But the, but the problem is, is you kick open the door with the, with the word yom to... You either have to interpret a passage as an historical account or you don't. And I'm going to get into that uh, right here. Let's, let's, let's just put this up front. If you want a, if you want an historical Christ, then you need an historical Adam. If you posit evolutionary theory at all, you must admit there was death prior to the sin of Adam. That's a major problem. Because evolution depends on death. What did Jesus think of death? What did St. Paul, who we just quoted, think of death? It was an enemy. The last enemy to be defeated. If you hold to an evolutionary creation of man, God used death, the last enemy, to create man, which he called good. Last time I read Genesis. There's a major theological problem here that unfortunately Walsh just does not address in this entire podcast. He says, oh, this is no big deal. Why are we fussing over young earth, old earth? This is why. And to give him credit, honestly, we don't argue in these ways often enough. We we often turn to the science, and the science is there. But given given the weight of the theology here, we better figure out a way to make quote make the science fit and we'll talk about that a little bit later but because if if there was if there's no first adam there's no second adam that is christ and we've got a major problem here and if adam was created created through the processes of evolution then that requires death there's just, there, the 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 problems are manifold here all right so that's the theological significance of what's going on here that Walsh just doesn't quite get his mind around. And by the way, you can't hold to any form of, of evolutionary theory and be a consistent Christian. You, you can't. You've got to discard central theological tenets. That's really the point. The inconsistency. And that, you know, again... Deistic, athe- deistic evolutionist, theistic evolutionist, when I was a poppy evangelical pastor, through my experimentation years with atheism and liberalism and these sorts of things, thinking through these things and starting to think about creation and what impact this has on theology, you cannot be consistent and hold to evolution as a Christian. You cannot. It doesn't work. It just simply doesn't. That's the point. You have to be inconsistent. You can say you can say, "Oh, yes, I'm a Christian theistic evolutionist." You can say that, but you're being inconsistent. And my considered guess is, is Walsh wants to be consistent. 
I mean, he's very concerned about the science thing. We want to be consistent with science. I mean, all this science tells us, right? But if you want to be consistent, you can't hold this view. But the Bible talks about days before there is a rotating earth, before there really is an earth at all, um, at least a, uh, an earth of, of any uh, discernible shape, and before there's a sun for the earth to rotate around. Thus, we can already say rather definitively, I think, that we're not talking about an earth day. We're, talking about a 20, uh, we're not talking about a 24-hour day because such a thing does not yet exist. Um. Now, I, you know, I don't even think we, we don't even need to get into the translation discussion. Uh, if you look at the word in, in, in the Hebrew word for day, does it have to mean 24 hours or could it be referring to a broader kind of passage of time? Um, in English, the word day means either um, uh, a 24 hour period corresponding with the rotation of the earth. That's one definition. Or a day means an age, a period of time. Um, can the, can day be understood in Hebrew in the same sort of way? And the answer is yes, it can be. It, 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 the, uh, the word day in Hebrew can mean several different things. There are those who say that he, that the Hebrew word for day, as it's used in Genesis, cannot ever mean anything but a 24 hour day. That is simply false. That is not true. And this is one of my problems, uh, you know, with some of the young earth creationists is that they look at this text that people have been studying for thousands of years, and it's very dense and, and, in fact, very complex. And they say, no, I know exactly what it means. And I know exactly what it means. There's zero chance that I'm wrong. And they'll say, no, they can't mean anything but that. And it's just not true. What they're saying is simply untrue. It can mean many different things. Um, in English, you know, if I say back in my day or in the days of old, I don't mean a 24-hour period. I mean a chunk of time. In fact, in Genesis itself, day is used in at least three different ways in Genesis. <clears throat> he named the light day and the darkness night. Okay, that's one meaning of day. First day, second day. That's another meaning of day. And then it says, um, uh, you are free to eat from the tree in, in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, Adam lived, we're told, for 900 years. He didn't die on the day that he ate it. Yes, he died spiritually, but physical death also came from the fall. So it would seem that die, in that verse, has two meanings, which would mean that day probably has multiple meanings as well. So you've got, you've got day uh, used in multiple different ways within Genesis. All you have to do is read Genesis to see that. So Walsh is missing the point here. And, and again, you know, creationists, you know, uh, this, this debate about what yom means, day, uh, occurs between, you know, uh, intelligent design folks, you know, cre creationist Christians uh, that espouse a long day, a gap theory, and this sort of thing. I don't think that's where the debate is at all. The debate is, we need an historical Adam, right? That's the idea. That's what St. Paul really has put to us, is that we, you know, no historical Adam, no historical Christ. If we're going to allegorize Adam, 
then we're free to allegorize Christ. There's a, there's a direct connection there. So, the problem with allegorize... The reason I don't want to allegorize day is because it opens the door to allegorize Adam. I mean, after all, snakes don't talk... You know, serpents, you know, snakes, whatever they are, they don't talk. So, Adam is a metaphor, Eve is a metaphor... Day is a metaphor. This is all allegory to show us what? That God used death to create Adam? That's completely inconsistent with the biblical record as we've pointed out. Now, to my long day gap theory theistic evolutionist friends, when does Adam come on the scene? And how exactly does that work in a manner that's consistent with the rest of Holy Scripture? Where do we draw the lines in this thing? Again, I think we can understand from the plain language of Genesis that day is used differently there. Of course. We can understand day to be something different. But when God talks about creating day one, day two, day three... See, allegory and metaphor are not wholly apart from the thing. So, when Christ is described as a rock, that doesn't mean he literally is a rock, but that doesn't mean also that he's nothing like a rock. A rock is a a close analogy to what Christ is like. He's a foundation. We can put our lives on. We can build on him. See? And so, if, even if day is used metaphorically or allegorically, it can't be something wholly apart, especially when it's in such a sequence like this. And so, again, when you allegor the, the main point is, though, when you allegorize this, what stops you from allegorizing Adam and Eve and the serpent? This is just the theology. This is, these are just the theological problems among Christians. Creation scientists don't, or uh, evolutionary scientists don't even care about this. But among Christians, the theology should matter. And this is just the theology. We haven't even gotten to the science yet. First day began, and there was light, etc. It doesn't say on the first day God created the heavens and the earth. It says in the beginning. And then there's a first day. So, with all these points in mind, you hopefully see why um, I think the Bible does not require us to believe in, in, a, in a young earth uh, creationism. Uh, you can believe it. You can draw that conclusion theologically, but you don't have to. It's um, Yeah, it is theologically required for the reasons we've stated. We need an historical Adam. St. Paul speaks in his epistles as if Adam was literally formed from the dust. My question to Walsh might be, is St. Paul being allegorical here? When he insists upon the reality of the creation. And Christ even refers to this when he talks about marriage in the Gospels. We, 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 you just can't get around this. And then, on top of that, the fact that I point out that if humans evolved from apes 
And I don't know where Walsh stands on this. If humans evolved from apes, then God used death, the last enemy, to bring about the creation of man. Just want to recapitulate that. Let's continue. Not required. There's a reason why faithful Christians for 2,000 years have arrived at different conclusions on Genesis. It's not a simple text. It is, it is not easy to understand. It's quite dense, quite mysterious. And um, theologically, you can justify multiple interpretations. But if we're interested in getting some idea as to how these things physically happened and when, if we want to, um, you know, if, if that's what we're trying to figure out, then I think we look at the science. And then when we look at the science, certain interpretations of Genesis become significantly less tenable. The real point of the Bible is about, the Bible is all about why, why we're here. We're here to love and serve God. Science has nothing to say about that one way or another. So now we're getting into Jordan Peterson territory. The real point of the Bible is to teach us how to live. The history doesn't matter. The science doesn't matter. None of that matters. What's taught from Holy Scripture about how, where our origins are from or what actually happened in history doesn't really matter if we have a real Christ or not. It's just to teach us why. Why we're here and how we are to live. That's the argument that Walsh seems to be making. Now, I know that's a poor construction, and I know that he probably doesn't mean that necessarily. But that's what's coming across here. We can't cross-reference that with science. But when it comes to our interpretations of the how and the winds, well, then things like archaeology, cosmology, uh, physics, all of that becomes useful. Science tells us that the Earth is around 4 billion years old. Or I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, the Earth is 4 billion, around 4 billion, and the universe is around 14 billion years old. In order to defend the six-day creationist view, we must essentially reject the fields of modern astronomy, cosmology, geology, and biology. We must declare that all but a very tiny fraction of experts in those fields are deluded fools. We must basically wage an all-out war on modern science because it stands so explicitly and starkly against young earth creationism. My question to Walsh here would be, has he actually listened to any creation scientists on this? There's plenty of holes in an older theory as well. It's not as cut, it's not cut as cut and dried as pop science would have you think. And you want to talk about an all-out war? What a lot of Christians don't understand is that these scientific theories began as an all-out war on the church and the very existence of God. This is the new atheists' main weapon against religion. So why give them an inch on this? So we don't look crazy? I mean, Walsh, who's a Romanist, believes that bread literally turns into flesh and wine turns into blood. Which, as a Lutheran, I disagree with in nuanced ways. He believes baptism regenerates, saves people. Basically, I agree with that as a Lutheran. He believes Christ rose from the dead. I totally agree with that, etc. We believe things from Holy Scripture because God revealed it to us. They already think we're crazy, Matt. 
And again, I found sticking to our guns on this actually furthers apologetic efforts and does not hinder them. And if indeed that's what he's scared of. And it seems like, given his thesis on this, that you know we don't need to, we don't need to go there. Um, that that's what he's after. I'll say this: you will be very hard pressed to find a legitimate geologist or cosmologist or physicist or astronomer who believes, based on his studies, that the Earth and the universe are ten thousand years old. But even those people, if you listen to what they're saying, they're not claiming that they can prove this just by looking at the ev- the, the physical scientific evidence. What they're, they're starting with Genesis and their interpretation of it and then trying to make the science fit. And that's, that's just, that's not how you do science. Now this made me chuckle a bit, gotta admit. <laughs> um, does he not see how naturalist materialists are starting with their presuppositions and trying to make the science fit? I agree that creation scientists are trying to harmonize scripture with science totally agree with that but let's not pretend for a second that Sam Harris Sam Harris at all Richard Dawkins aren't trying to harmonize science with their with their naturalistic materialism that is with their athe- atheism so a few suggestions to our buddy Matt here and anyone else go listen to a few hours of scientists like Jason Lyle who has a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Colorado David Minton, who has a Ph.D. in biology from Brown. Grady McMurtry, who has a master's in environmental science and, and a, a D-min in theology. Those would be the guys I would point to. And just because we're in the minority doesn't mean we're, we're wrong. That's not real science. Now, I fully admit that I'm neither a cosmologist or a geologist, so I must decide whether I will believe the near-unanimous consensus in those fields, or if I will come to the conclusion that they're all a bunch of godless liars and lunatics because certain Christians insist that the word day in Genesis can only mean 24 hours and nothing else. I must ask myself, what's more likely, that the entire fields of cosmology, astronomy, and geology are wrong, illegitimate, and falsified, or that young earth creationists are simply misinterpreting the text? What's the more plausible explanation? That modern science is completely wrong? Or that young earth creationists are misinterpreting it? Um, And it isn't just those scientific fields that young earthers need to disqualify. There are many others that we basically are disqualifying. Paleontology. Most every paleontologist in the world will tell you that dinosaurs existed and they died off 60 million years ago. But young earthers, based on one word in the Bible that they have interpreted in one particular way, will say to paleontologists, nope, you're all wrong. All of your work is wrong. Your life's work is wrong. Everything you think is wrong. It's everything you've studied. It's all wrong, 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 wrong. Because I believe that the word day in Genesis can only mean 24 hours. Um, I just, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh. So you, we we have to discard and and then and then you know young earthers must must also uh, say that well dino, either they say dinosaurs never existed and it's all a big sham. I've heard, I've had some young earthers tell me that um, God put dinosaur bones in the earth to to test our faith. It's all a prank that he's playing on us. 
or that um, that there were Tyrannosaurus rexes and Brontosauruses and Triceratops and Stegosauruses on Noah's Ark. Uh, somehow they all fit on there and didn't, and they also didn't eat uh, everybody. Um, and then once they got off the ark, they all died in some mass extinction event that only affected the dinosaurs. And then all of their bones somehow sifted and 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 and, and sunk lower in the ground than any other bones. And they fossilized so as to take on the appearance of age. I mean, it's just you, you've got to run through all of these massive loops and you've got to do these twirls and, and handstands and everything to make this work when you don't need to. Um, archaeology is another field of study that young earthers w- would have to basically uh, uh, disqualify. Archaeologists have dug up many ancient artifacts, sculptures and so forth, that are clearly made by humans and are clearly older than 10,000 years, significantly older, like 30, 40, 50,000 years. There are, for example, many of what are called Venus sculptures, sculptures of large women with exaggerated features that seem to indicate some kind of fertility worship by ancient people. Um, Some of these Venus sculptures are significantly older than 10,000 years. You will not find a legitimate archaeologist who will look at every prehistoric artifact and declare, based on his study of those artifacts, that none of them were made before 10,000 years. You will not find one who can say that. Uh, So archaeology has to be bunk as well, on the young earth view. Physics. Albert Einstein, one of the most brilliant minds ever to exist on earth, believed that the universe was billions of years old. But young earthers, I mean, they basically tell us that we have to treat Ken Ham as a greater authority on the subject than Einstein. And I just can't do that. Mathematics must also be discarded on the young earth view because it is through mathematical equations that we measure cosmic distance and age. And so young earthers are saying that even mathematics we can't trust. Nothing can be trusted. Um, In fact, we know that if you're looking at a star, and the star is however many light years away, you're looking that many years into the past because it took that many years for the light to reach here. And this is a huge problem for young earthers. It may, it may actually be the biggest problem of all. I think it's the thing above everything else that settles the question. And it's an insurmountable problem, I think, for young earthers. Any stars that we have located which are over 10,000 light years from us, would seem to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the universe is older than 10,000 years. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to see them because the light wouldn't have gotten to us yet. You see? The Hubble Space Telescope recently located a star 9 billion light years away, which is to say that it looked 9 billion years into the past, which is incredible, now, I would expect this from a new atheist, but I don't expect this from a fellow believer like Walsh to straw man the new, the young earth creationist standpoint. To say that basically all new creationists have is that we interpret the word yom, the Hebrew word for day, as a 24-hour period. That's all we have. So we're going to throw out all of the scientific disciplines based on that. That 
that is not a fair representation. Let's get to the science here. Just hit a few points. Geological dating techniques are notoriously unreliable. But don't trust me. Let's turn to Grady McMurtry, who grew up at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and who now talks about creation science. There are major contradictions between different dating methods used on the same rock. For example, this is Sunset Crater National Monument. It is south and east of the Grand Canyon in Arizona. It's a relatively small volcano. We know that this eruption can be dated at about 900 years ago. We can do that by tree ring counties because 900 is not a big deal. And we know that there were Native American Indians living in the area. First of all, their remains of uh, their houses and so forth are there. And also, in the cinder cones, in the lava flows, from this eruption, we found Native Indian artifacts. So we know that there were people living there at the time that the eruption occurred, and some of their artifacts were trapped in the material from this eruption. So, there were Native Indian artifacts found in the lava flows and cinder cones. Now, this is volcanic rock. Now, when it comes to volcanic rock, the method of choice here would be the potassium-argon method of dating. And so... Uh, we potassium argon dated some of this material, and the laboratory that did the work came up with a date of 210 to 230,000 years old. Or what about this rock? This comes from Australia. This is a piece of volcanic rock from an eruption in Australia. Inside the rock, when we cut it open, we found this burned wood. It's really charcoal. Um, so let's think. This volcano erupted. The rock completely surrounded a piece of wood. There's no question there's no contamination here. There, rock completely sealed the wood inside. Now the heat of the lava caused the wood to burn and so we were left with basically charcoal inside the rock and lava rock on the outside. Now of course since this is charcoal you would use the carbon-14 dating technique and the rock is volcanic so you would use the potassium-argon technique. The laboratories that did the dates got for the carbon-14 date on this wood an age of 45,000 years old. The lab that did the potassium argon date on the piece of lava got a date of uh, 37 million. I think I see a problem here. Or how about this? There is no evidence for cross-species evolution. In fact, the missing link has yet to be found. And indeed, the missing link has been falsified in many instances. There's frauds going on in the fossil record. Uh, let Dr. David Menton, again, as we mentioned, PhD in biology from Brown University explain. Notice Stern and Sussman said, the marked resemblance of Lucy's hip to the chimp is equally obvious. So this pelvis is like a chimp. Just a few years ago on television, the PBS Nova series, they had Dr. Owen Lovejoy on, who's a famous human evolutionist, and he was lamenting the fact that Lucy has ape hips and that with ape hips she couldn't walk like a human, but we know she did. So what's the solution? You are not going to believe what you're about to see. Superficially, her hip resembled a chimpanzee's, which meant that Lucy couldn't possibly have walked like a modern human. Lovejoy is going to hold up this fossil of hip bones and he's going to say the following. These bones fit together so well, they're in an anatomically impossible position. 
Uh, this has caused the two bones, in fact, to fit together so well that they're in an anatomically impossible position. The perfect fit was an illusion that made Lucy's hip bones seem to flare out like a chimp's. But all was not lost. Yeah, that would be a buzzsaw or a Dremel tool. Lovejoy I decided mean... he could restore the pelvis to its natural shape. He didn't want to tamper with the original, so he made a copy in plaster. He cut the damaged pieces out and put them back together the way they were before Lucy died. It was a tricky job, but after taking the kink out of the pelvis, it all fit together perfectly. It fit like real good. Like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. As a result, the angle of the hip looks nothing like a chimp's, but a lot like ours. Here, I'll just let you be the determiner of who's perpetrating the greatest level of fraud in this situation. We found bones. We want them to look like human bones evolving from a chimp. And so the scientist takes out a saw. Interesting. But let's move on to the, uh, the speed of light notion and why when we look at the stars and we know the speed of light we must determine that the earth must be old this is dr jason lyle see we're stuck in a permanent catch-22 it is fundamentally impossible to measure the one-way speed of light it cannot be done because you need to have synchronized clocks and the only way you can have synchronized clocks is if you already knew the one-way speed of light cannot be done. Now, when you have a catch-22 like this, it suggests that the question may be a bad question, a faulty question. And so I'm going to conclude that the one-way speed of light is not actually a property of nature at all, but is something that is a convention. A convention is something that we choose, and we all agree to it, and we stick with it, and it works. The one-way speed of light is like that. We get to choose what it is, and that tells us how to synchronize our clocks. And then, whatever, then when you measure the one-way speed of light with your synchronized clocks, you'll find it was whatever you chose. So the lightning bolt strikes exactly in between these two clocks, and we're going to decide that the speed of light's the same in both directions. We can do that. We're going to choose that, and then uh, the two clocks are synchronized. But if you want to make a different choice, you can do that too, and you can synchronize them differently. That light requires the same time to traverse the path A to M as for the path B to M is in reality neither a supposition nor a hypothesis about the physical nature of light, but a stipulation which I can make of my own free will in order to arrive at a definition of simultaneity. We choose the one-way speed of light, and that tells us how to synchronize clocks. And that quote is by Albert Einstein. Einstein recognized that the one-way speed of light is not something you measure, it's something you choose. Which means I can choose it to be something very different than what most people do. In fact, I can choose the speed of light to be infinite when it's directly toward me and half C when it's moving away. And the reason I pick those two values, it, it has to average to C. It has to average to the speed of light that's the round trip speed. Okay, but you get to pick the one-way speed and then the average will tell you what the return trip has to be. And it turns out it's one half C if you make it infinite in one direction because it's a time averaged. And one of the reasons I choose this is because it solves the distance starlight problem. 
But another reason is because all ancient cultures implicitly used this definition. They didn't subtract off light travel time because they didn't know what the speed of light was. When you saw something, that's when it happened. And so I'm going to suggest that the distant starlight is solved if we use this. I'm going to call it an anisotropic, which means different different directions, anisotropic synchrony convention, or ASK. Using the anisotropic synchrony convention, light takes no time at all to get from distant galaxies to here. And according to Einstein, I'm free to, I'm free to synchronize clocks that way. And the distant starlight problem, therefore, is solved if the Bible's using that convention too. And so that's really the only issue. Is the Bible using this alternate, this uh, anisotropic synchrony convention, or is it using Einstein convention, or is it using something else? So the question I'd ask Matt here is, is are these the people he's accusing of interpreting Yom as a 24-hour period? And that's the entire premises of their argument. I mean, I can see how he would say this is, you know, handstanding and acrobatics and that sort of thing. But science kind of does these things in a lot of ways. And when you really look into it carefully, as as Dr. Jason Lyle has, and these other scientists, things are not so cut and dried. It takes a bit of explanation. I mean, the speed of light. As Dr. Lyle pointed out, according to Einstein, he, he, I mean, Walsh invoked Einstein in this whole thing. It's not as cut and dried as we think it is. So at any rate, the point being that for Walsh to take this tack towards young Earth, young Earth creationists is disingenuous. It demonstrates he hasn't really studied any serious young Earth creationists. And that's unfortunate. But hopefully through stuff like this we can uh, change some hearts and minds. I know mine has. And hopefully we, get, we can get the idea. And, and push back against the secularism. That's, that's what astonishes me about a lot of political conservatives. When it comes to this sort of thing, they're not really, you know, they'll seed this ground. And what they don't realize is when they cede this ground, they're ceding uh, some other political concerns as well. At any rate, thank you for listening. Please give your $50 to the Kenyuel Project or commit to the $10 a month. Also, thank you to K&A The Cross for broadcasting us, and we'll see you next week.